0: Disc 10 For Wilson, the real answers were the same ones that the Attlee government had tried. State ownership and state planning would end the inefficiencies of the private system. There would be a huge expansion of university places, new state direction of R&D, even a state-sponsored chemical engineering consortium. He was offering an answer to the stop-go-demand management of the Tory years. Instead, Labour would grow the economy through the supply-side reforms of better education and higher investment in science. This was the man who had been in the wartime ministry of mines, plotting the rationalisation of the coal industry, who had been president of the Board of Trade in the late forties. It was the vision of an old-fashioned civil service man, but it sidestepped the weary ideological battles inside the Labour Party between right and left, and it sounded modern. From the late 17th century, science always has done. The problem Wilson would soon face was how to achieve a successful planned economy in a capitalist world. For all his abuse of them, the Tories had already set out on the same road. In 1962, suitably modern scientific British businesses, such as Dunlop and Ferranti, were represented at the table alongside trade union leaders and Whitehall mandarins at the first meeting of the National Economic Development Council, or NEDI. As Labour would also discover, simply talking and making optimistic forecasts was entirely useless. The Tory industrial experience of the early 60s, from the failed attempts to get voluntary agreements on prices and incomes, to the direction of entire industries in order to combat regional unemployment, were there to be learned from. But the tactical fun of teasing a Tory regime to death meant more to Wilson than carefully studying how to be a success in Downing Street. Wilson's zigzagging through Labour factions had hardly been glorious, but it had made him ruthless. He turned this ruthlessness against the Conservatives, making unfair but funny attacks on Douglas Hume's inability to understand economics except with matchsticks and his archaic background as a 14th Earl though the Prime Minister famously hit back by mildly replying that he supposed, when you thought about it, he supposed Mr. Wilson was the 14th Mr. Wilson. Wilson's chutzpah and increasingly self-confident style have been ascribed by many people to his political secretary, Marcia Williams. Later she would become a byword for clique and scandal, but she was a brilliant and loyal, if unpredictable, player in Wilson's inner team. She was described by another member of it, the Press Secretary Joe Haynes, as possessing a brilliant political mind, probably better than any other woman of her generation. She would rant and rail at Wilson, and treated him at times like a naughty schoolboy. Many believed she had had an affair with Wilson. "'Honeyfellow Wilson,' said Macmillan, "'keeps his mistress at number ten, always kept mine in St. John's Wood.' By another account, she once confronted Mary Wilson and told her she had had sex with her husband several times, years before, and it wasn't satisfactory. She and he always denied this, and would set libel lawyers, successfully, on journalists who repeated such stories. Even so, since Wilson's death, some have gone much further, asserting that the Russians had blackmailed him about Marcia, persuading him to work for them. This seems highly unlikely, The Matrochin Archive seems to clear him. What can safely be said is that she helped build up his morale, challenged his complacency, and, until her apparent bullying became intolerable, probably made him a better politician than he would otherwise have been. Some bad news, Minister. Labour came to power confronted by economic choices, which would torture it in office and come close to destroying it for good when it was finally defeated at the end of the 70s. From the first weekend in October 1964, when Wilson, his Chancellor Jim Callaghan and the other senior ministers picked up their briefing papers, appalling dilemmas stared them in the face. On the face of it, the economy was not doing so badly. Inflation was still low, though rising. Unemployment was relatively low. Productivity was respectable, though falling behind Britain's competitors. Strikes were a problem. Britain's falling share of world markets was a problem. But these were all issues voters might have expected a fresh, vigorous, forward-looking new government to be able to grip. A darker story was laid bare in the official briefings. Britain under the Tories had been wildly overspending. It was living on borrowed money. Britain's balance of payments was eyed with increasing worry and suspicion by its creditors, the Americans above all. Longer term, the only solution was for the British economy to become more successful, growing faster without sucking in inflation. Labour had ideas about that, more investment, more planning, a better educated workforce. But this would take time, and there was no time. When Callaghan arrived in Downing Street on the Friday evening after the election, his predecessor, the easy-going Tory Chancellor, Reggie Maudlink, is said to have passed him on the way out, stopped with his coat on his arm, and apologised. Sorry to leave such a mess, old cock. He wasn't talking about the furnishings. Callaghan's Treasury officials presented him with five hundred typed pages, arranged into forty-nine sections. They showed that the deficit the Tories had left him was far worse than previously thought some eight hundred million pounds, and that he would have to begin with a program of savage spending cuts and tax rises. Even then the pound, still a world reserve currency, would be under constant pressure. This was bad enough. Labour had been elected promising a more generous welfare system, better pensions, spending on schools, and much more. That was immediately in jeopardy. Prized national projects, including the supersonic airliner project jointly developed with the French, Concorde, were under threat of being axed. The Governor of the Bank of England, Lord Cromer, regarded by Labour ministers as a Tory reactionary, was quickly insisting that the deflationary squeeze must be tighter still and that other pet labour projects, such as the re of steel, must be dropped. He only desisted when Wilson warned him that in that case, he might have to hold an immediate election on the theme Who Governs Britain? Familiar later on, but in the 1964 context, meaning elected politicians or bankers. It was hardly surprising that the new team felt shocked and somehow betrayed. Callahan, who had lost his Baptist faith years before, began to pray again. Cuts and tax rises apart, there was one other obvious policy choice— which was to devalue the pound and, in effect, try to start again. Initially, devaluation was entirely ruled out by Wilson, Callaghan and Brown, who met privately on the Saturday following the 1964 election. They saw it as humiliating for Britain, cruel to poorer nations keeping their money in sterling, and possibly deadly for the Labour Party, which was still saddled with the memory of devaluation in 1949. Beyond that, buffeted by the pressures on the pound and the Bruce demands to cut and to tax, their only answer was more planning. As we have seen, the Conservatives had already been taken by the idea. Beeching's brutal reshaping of the railways had been an early example of the new ruthlessness. Meanwhile, Neddy had begun work three years before Labour came to power. Industrialists and trade unionists were sitting round large tables, creating working groups and setting plans for growth in exports, personal consumption, government spending, capital investment. Under Maudling, the Tories had also tried voluntary restraint in prices and incomes and a national plan. This was all meant to be French. In the early 60s, Paris was in vogue among the politicians, just as Parisian philosophers, filmmakers and singers were in vogue among the beatniks in their black turtlenecks who frequented the coffee bars a mile north of Westminster. France's system did not use production quotas or targets like the Soviet bloc. Instead, indicative planning meant the state directing money and materials into particular industries, regions, and products, while obliging French banks to invest in new factories and techniques. This had begun in the shattered post-war nation of 1947, under the Brandy merchant's son and father of the EU, Jean Monnet. Fifteen years on, France was connected by new rail and road systems. Her town planning seemed radical and effective compared to the mess of British cities, and from jet fighters to cars, engineering to plastics, she appeared more technologically successful than her old adversary. But Britain did not have the crisp centralism of the French political elite, nor the self-confident young technocrats being churned out of the new system of elite education created by President de Gaulle's post-war revolution. The Anarch. Britain had mutually suspicious captains of industry and union barons, plus a few economists and a highly independent, rather anti-manufacturing city. Under the Conservatives, cheerful growth figures were duly agreed and bore absolutely no relation to what then transpired. There were no levers. It might have been thought that Labour preparing for power would have taken note. Nothing of the sort. George Brown, after swallowing his bitter disappointment at failing to become Labour leader, was soon dreaming of a dramatic new role for himself as Knight-Commander of the British economy. The Tories' trouble, he told the Labour Conference, was that they didn't really believe in planning, which was why it was not working. Faith was needed, said Brother George. Whether or not it still moved mountains, then faith would at least move factories and output figures. It was the same vague, cheerful, fairies-in-the-garden faith in science and professionalism articulated by the wartime planner, Harold Wilson. Yet professionalism, never mind science, was sadly lacking. Brown wanted to run a new ministry which would oversee everything, dominating even the Treasury. Like many Labour people, he believed that the Treasury was rigidly conservative and therefore to blame for economic failure. As he later wrote, we were all expansionists at heart. To take on the self-confident Treasury, as well as the Bank of England, and by implication the City, might be regarded as rash. To succeed, it would certainly need wily and careful preparation. Yet, in a hurried, amateurish way, the Home Policy Committee of the Labour Party drew up its plans in 1963 to create a new department to run the economy. This would be known variously as the Ministry of Economic Expansion, the Ministry of Production, and eventually the Department of Economic Affairs, or DEA. No single document was ever produced giving details of how the DEA would work, its relationship with the Treasury, or its ultimate powers. The final agreement to go ahead with it was completed by Brown and Wilson late at night in the back of a taxi during the short journey between a London hotel and the Commons. Brown later conceded, with uncharacteristic understatement, I think it is a pity that we didn't produce a blueprint setting out precisely what we wanted to achieve. Meanwhile, over at the Treasury, some of the brightest minds were planning how to frustrate Brown's intended coup. In scenes which might have come from the post-1980 television satire Yes Minister, a new dividing line was drawn through the building, which left George Brown's DEA with a scattering of empty rooms and almost no staff. To find out about the economy, Brown's newly appointed private secretary, Tom Calcott, had virtually to steal the key economic briefing papers and smuggle them to Brown at his home. Many of the key staff Brown had hoped to use in the DEA were hurriedly switched to jobs in Downing Street or the Treasury itself before he could get his hands on them. In this stiff-collared boycott of facts, people and equipment, Calcott even had to snatch a typewriter. Bullying and hectoring Brown would eventually get his department up and running. In a blaze of energy, he would then write another and more detailed national plan. Yet without the oversight of taxation and spending controls operated by the treasury machine, his authority was not based on much beyond personality. Increasingly desperate, Brown went charging off round Whitehall on unexpected and often tempestuous personal visits, storming at other ministers. Breaking Whitehall protocol, he insisted on a private phone line that went directly to his desk, avoiding his private office. But the civil service is harder to beat than that. Colcott simply arranged with the post office to have Brown's phone bugged. And to ensure his private office knew when he was setting off on another personal mission, they had a discreet buzzer attached to his door, which would alert them as he left so he could be followed. Unaware, Brown drew together the usual industrialists, trade union leaders, and civil servants, and hammered out proposals for a British economic miracle, more detailed than the Tory version, but equally lacking in levers. His first move was to create a Declaration of Intent, committing both sides of industry to voluntary wages and prices controls, and within his first year he had a full-blown national plan, with economic planning councils set up across Britain. One sympathetic biographer calls this a huge personal achievement, the result of working immensely long hours, breaking every convention to get his own way, and successively bullying and charming and ultimately exhausting those who support he required. There was much shouting at officials, much searching for key documents hidden by the Treasury, which had by now taken to calling its would-be rival the Department for Extraordinary Aggression. The trouble was that by the time Brown's deal-making marathon had been completed, the economy was in such trouble, voluntary controls were impossible. The Treasury had squeezed the DEA into irrelevance before it properly got going. Crossman, the cabinet minister and diarist, was worried as early as December 1964 at the absence of economic strategy as the pound came under increasing pressure. Both Callaghan and Brown were routinely describing the situation privately as desperate. Labour's promises to its supporters, including pensioners, were already impossible to fund. Crossman recorded, "'The pound is still being nibbled away, and I feel the cabinet isn't very firm or very stable, because the central leadership isn't there, the sense of priorities, the sense of grip that you need. Yes, we've got a remarkable man in Harold Wilson and a good man in George Brown.' but what we still lack is that coherent, strong control, which is real policy. Roy Jenkins, later to become Chancellor himself, recorded a similar assessment. So long as the pound remained expensive compared to the dollar, there was hardly an event in the world which did not produce a British currency crisis, and the only way of dealing with such a crisis was a new package of hastily approved deflationary measures which seemed bereft of any strategic framework. This left the DEA a marooned and rudderless creature once the cuts had destroyed its growth targets. Brown was moved to the Foreign Office in 1966, and the department was passed around until eventually it came under the personal control of Wilson, an idea that came to him in the middle of the night after he had been woken by his adored but delinquent Labrador Paddy. That did no good, and the DEA died. Empty Pots and Magic Boxes in other areas, Labour was on the move. Tony Crossland, a dashing ex-paratrooper and admirer of Hugh Gateskill, has featured earlier in this history for his rebellion against socialist puritanism and his seminal book The Future of Socialism, which called on the left to accept the consumer society and the mixed economy. By 1965, as MP for Grimsby, he was a rising Labour star, a glamorous, cheroot-smoking, rough-tongued man known for his ferocious attacks on the public school system. He had recently married the exceptionally beautiful divorced American journalist Susan Catling, acquired two stepdaughters, and moved into a house in London's Notting Hill, no longer the scene of riots and not yet the backdrop for glossy films. Wilson had made him Education Secretary after offering the job to Crossland's friend and rival Roy Jenkins, whose children were at private schools. Crossland's next two years would make him one of the most controversial, reviled and admired ministers in the history of British schooling. His wife Susan wrote a book about him, which is as tender and eloquent a portrait of a twentieth-century British politician as exists. But in it she also revealed a couple of sentences he uttered to her, which have been hung around Crossland's reputation ever since. Luckily for posterity, the journalist in her trumped the pious memorialist. It was late one night in their home when he had been at a wearisome dinner with teachers' associations. Crossland's tread was ominous as he mounted the stairs. He stopped at our bedroom door. Good evening. You'd better come in the study. I put my novel aside and got smartly out of our bed— "'wondering what had caused this latest vexation. "'If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to destroy every fucking grammar school in England,' he said. "'And Wales, and Northern Ireland.' "'Why not Scotland?' I asked out of pure curiosity. "'Because their schools come under the Secretary of State for Scotland.' "'He began to laugh at his inability to destroy their grammar schools. "'By 1965, the post-war division of children into potential intellectuals, technical workers, and drones,' gold, silver, and lead, was thoroughly discredited. The private or public schools still thrived, with around 5% of the country's children creamed off through their exclusive portals. For the other 95%, ever since 1944, state schooling was meant to be divided into three types of school. In practice, however, there were just two. For roughly a quarter of children, there were the grammar schools, offering traditional academic teaching— including much memorising and strict discipline. The grandest of these were the 179 direct-grant schools, effectively independent of central government and often with strong traditions of their own, schools such as Manchester Grammar, Haberdasher's Asks, Elstree, and King Edwards in Birmingham. They tended to be long-established schools, town academies or old foundations, with uniforms, badges and school songs to match their brighter children would be expected to go to the expanding university sector and to become professionals. Alongside them, also traditionalist in atmosphere but with less independence and status, were some 1,500 ordinary grammar schools, maintained by the local authorities. For the other three-quarters of state-educated children, there were the secondary moderns, frankly second-rate and often in buildings which reflected their lower status. As one writer observed in 1965, modern had become a curious euphemism for less clever. Some of these schools were truly dreadful, sparsely staffed, crowded into ancient and unsuitable buildings, and setting almost no pupils for outside examinations before most were released to start work at 15. At A-level in 1964, the secondary moderns, with around 72% of Britain's children, had 318 candidates. The public schools, with 5%, had 9,838. The third kind of school, originally planned in 1944, was to have been the technical school, teaching specific practical skills on German lines, but these had been forgotten. In practice, there was therefore a sharp public sheep and goats division of the country's children, which took place at eleven years old through the eleven-plus examination. It, in turn, was based on an IQ test, supposed to scientifically measure intelligence. Among those who made it to the grammar schools, many hated being separated from their old friends, George Best and Neil Kinnock being among the innumerable examples of eleven-plus successes, who then bunked off or frittered their school days in a mood of rebellion. Many of the majority who were rejected and sent to the secondary moderns never got over the sense of rejection and failure. John Prescott never forgot that his brother passed and was given a bicycle while he failed and wasn't. Rifts opened in families. Siblings turned on each other. Any schooling system has some problems. Most involve unfairness at one stage or another. Academic selection and examinations require children to fail as well as to succeed. But by the late fifties there were larger complaints. The IQ tests were shown not to be nearly as reliable as first thought. Substantial minorities, up to 60,000 children a year, were at the wrong school and many were being transferred later, up or down. Different education authorities had wildly different proportions of grammar school and secondary modern places, division by geography, not examination. A big expansion of teachers and buildings was needed to deal with those post-war baby boom children who were now reaching secondary school. Across Britain there were rotting buildings and a shortage of around 60,000 teachers desperately looking for money, education authorities snatched at the savings a simple comprehensive system might produce. Socialists who wanted more equality, among whom Crossland had long been prominent, were against the eleven-plus on ideological grounds. But many articulate middle-class parents, who would never have called themselves socialist, were equally against it because their children had failed to get grammar school places. With all these pressures, education authorities, that is, local councillors, not national politicians, had begun to move towards a one-school-for-all, or comprehensive system, during the Conservative years. Tory councils were doing this, as well as Labour ones. The Conservative Education Secretary, a man on the left of his party, Sir Edward Boyle, found that 90 of the 146 education authorities in England and Wales were making some moves towards comprehensive schooling by 1962. So, when Crossland took over, the great schooling revolution, which has caused so much controversy ever since, was well underway. There were already comprehensives on the Swedish model, and they were much admired for their huge scale, airy architecture, and apparent modernity. The first had been Kidbrook in Blackheath, southeast London, which opened for 2,200 girls in 1954. Grammar schools across the country were fighting back, particularly in cities with a strong sense of their history, such as Bristol and Nottingham, but across the country generally they were losing ground. What Crosland did was to hasten their destruction. He did this not by ordering the education authorities to go comprehensive, but by requesting them to, in what has been described as the most famous circular in the history of the Education Department, Directive 10-65. Stroke he did not say how many comprehensives must be opened, nor how many grammar schools should be shut down. But by making government money for new school building conditional, ongoing comprehensive, the change was greatly accelerated. By 1970, when Wilson was defeated, a third of children were at comprehensives, and a mere eight education authorities were holding on to the old division. The revolution simply rolled on. Edward Heath, devoted to his old grammar school, had promised to stop bullying educational authorities into destroying grammar schools. Crosslands 10-65 stroke was duly withdrawn, and Heath appointed that ultimate enthusiast for the grammar school system, Margaret Thatcher, as Education Secretary. She duly announced a presumption against further shake-up and change. But what happened? Out of 3,612 proposals for comprehensive sent to Mrs. Thatcher, She turned down just 326, and the proportion of children at comprehensives nearly doubled again, up from 32% under Labour to 62% under this thoroughly Conservative politician. As one of her biographers flatly pointed out, for all her strong prejudices against them, Margaret Thatcher approved more schemes for comprehensive schools and the abolition of more grammar schools than any other Secretary of State before or since. Heath, who fought a tough campaign as Prime Minister to save his local grammar school in Bexley, blamed the desire of Tory-led authorities to save money by replacing boys-only and girls-only grammars with co-ed comprehensives. He also confessed, "'The tide was strong, but I do wish, in retrospect, that the many supporters of selection had all campaigned more vigorously before it was too late.'" There had always been a contradiction in the way comprehensives were sold— which was neatly summed up by Wilson when he promised that they would offer a grammar school education for all. Since the essence of grammar schools was that they selected only the brightest children, this was plainly a ridiculous suggestion. Yet Wilson was reflecting back something that was deeply rooted among parents and many Labour voters, which was a simple enthusiasm for good education, meaning traditional teaching in a disciplined environment, Popularly associated with grammar schools. Most other countries, after all, had traditionalist, even rote learning education in a single state system, without the division of schools by academic ability. If the Germans and Americans, the French, Russians, and Swedes could do it, why not the British? It was the singular misfortune of the comprehensive experiment that it coincided with a move away from traditional education to what was called child centered teaching. In the long run, this may well have been more important than any structural reorganisation of schools. Instead of viewing the child as an empty pot, happily large or sadly small, into which a given quantity of facts and values could be poured, the new teaching regarded the child as a magic box, crammed with integrity and surprise, which should be carefully unwrapped. Perhaps a more organic metaphor is called for, the young sapling should be watered and admired, not tied to a stick nor pruned. Here was a fundamental disagreement about the nature of humanity and social order. Philosophically, it goes back to the French thinkers of the eighteenth century, but it was fought out in concrete form in British classrooms throughout this period. The old rows of desks facing a blackboard began to go, and cosily intimate semicircles of chairs appeared. Children of different abilities were taught in the same room, so that they could learn from each other, causing some chaos and boredom. Topics replaced lists. Grammar retreated, and creativity advanced. Teachers began to dress informally, and encourage the use of an Adrian or Sarah, rather than Sir or Miss. Corporal punishment went from state schools entirely, and on the vast, windy sites of the Seventies comprehensives, with their modernist airiness— discipline loosened. The elite remained mainly in private schools, taught much as their parents and grandparents had been, but across the country millions of parents shook their heads and wondered. Hostility to comprehensives, which would swell through the eighties and nineties, was much of the time really hostility to trendy teaching, the spirit of the sixties which was being marshaled and organised in scores of teacher training colleges. Crossland's legacy went far beyond comprehensives. He was a high spender on education, as was Margaret Thatcher, both believing long before Tony Blair that there was no better way of investing taxes than in education, education, education. In particular, he oversaw a big expansion of higher education, the creation of thirty polytechnics to supplement Britain's universities. These were to develop the technical and practical higher education enjoyed by German and French students but which was sadly lacking in the fustier and more academic British universities. This offended the universities, not surprisingly, who had been hoping for a major expansion in their own right. The Robbins report had reminded the country that just 5% of British youngsters went into higher education, as compared to 25% of Americans or 12% of French. There was a major expansion underway, from the trendiest of all, Sussex University at Brighton, to the red bricks, which were in fact often concrete, granite, or plate-glass erections, from Liverpool to Bristol, Aberdeen to Southampton. But Crossland argued, the then fashionable case, that Britain needed technical and industrial colleges on the German model far more than universities. Britain had to get away from its snobbish, caste-ridden hierarchical obsession with university status. Later, the wheel would come full circle when the polytechnics and other colleges would simply be allowed to call themselves universities, but at the time the Crossland ideologies seemed on a par with his crusade for comprehensives, a vigorous attack on the old and traditional in favour of a more efficient and egalitarian new Britain. Perhaps the proudest educational achievement of the Wilson years was the open university. It, too, was nothing if not new. First proposed in 1962 by the same Michael Young, who had co-written Labour's 1945 manifesto, the Open University was hatched in government by Jenny Lee, a Scottish miner's daughter and Nye Bevan's widow. Originally described as a university of the air, the OU was meant to offer higher education to millions who had not had the chance to go to a campus university. Lee was determined that it should offer serious, heavyweight degree courses, taught by academics with a strong reputation. Attacked by the Conservatives at the time as blithering nonsense, it aimed to use television and the Postal Service to teach degree-level courses in everything from the sciences to history and law. It has been one of the most successful and liberating acts by a post-war government in education. Its critics attacked it first for being not elite enough, and later for attracting too many middle-class women, but by the mid-2000s the OU was being ranked in the top five British universities for teaching quality, and had given qualifications to some 600,000 of the two million people who studied with it. This is often credited as Wilson's great contribution, and he was a great supporter, but Jenny Lee was the heroine of a hundred committee fights to create it. As for Crossland, he would go on to serve as the Environment Secretary who warned the high-spending local authorities in 1975 that the party's over. But the destruction of Labour's own high-spending instincts in the economic storm of the seventies blew away the easy optimism of his political philosophy. In 1977, still hoping to be Chancellor, and after enduring a dinner sitting beside a woman whose conversation about the EEC he said was killing him, Crossland died of a stroke at the age of fifty-eight. Roy Jenkins' Britain The greatest changes of the labour years were achieved by Roy Jenkins, a man Wilson had always distrusted. Back in the Tory years, when he was slim and dashing, Roy Jenkins had set out his case for social reforms, which would remove the state's powers over individual freedoms. He argued that the ghastly apparatus of the gallows must go, as well as judicial flogging, that the persecution of homosexuals should end, as Wolfenden had suggested, that the Lord Chamberlain's powers to censor stage plays must also end, that the harsh and archaic law forbidding almost all abortions should be changed, that the divorce laws which caused unnecessary suffering should be reformed, that the immigration laws needed to be made more civilized. Through the mid-sixties, all these changes happened. Hanging went in 1965, before Jenkins became Home Secretary, but there was a softening on immigration in 1966. Flogging went in 1967, the same year as the liberalisation of abortion law and the decriminalisation of private homosexual acts between men aged over 21. State censorship of plays ended in 1968, and the following year the divorce laws were liberalised. Jenkins had also called for changes to the laws on suicide and on alcohol licensing, and those came later, but it was a formidable drum roll of libertarian change, without precedent and never matched. Ever afterwards, Roy Jenkins has been either praised or demonised as the most liberal Home Secretary in British history, the man more responsible for the permissive society than any other. But though he himself called his first spell at the Home Office the Liberal Hour, one of the oddities of this is that Jenkins was personally responsible for few of these measures. They were private members' bills. The abolition of hanging on a free vote in 1965 was led by the Labour backbencher Sidney Silverman. He was building on a rising tide of disquiet about judicial death in Britain. The 8am ritual carried out from condemned cells throughout the country Often using a portable gallows transported from Pentonville Prison in London, with its pinions, white hood, last glass of brandy, and unmarked grave in prison grounds, had been followed with intense interest throughout modern times. By the mid-fifties, many thought the practice uncivilized. Famous writers such as Arthur Kersler, scourge of the Stalinists who had faced death himself, and famous broadcasters such as Ludovic Kennedy, were gaining a public hearing against capital punishment. That might have remained an elite interest, had it not been for some hangings that caused more general queasiness. In 1952, two teenagers were involved in the murder of a policeman during a robbery. The one who actually fired the shot, Christopher Craig, was sixteen at the time, and therefore escaped the rope. But he was accompanied by Derek Bentley, who, at nineteen, was old enough to be hanged. He was being held by police when the murder occurred, and he had the mental age of a child, but was judged guilty. Despite a national campaign for clemency and a letter signed by more than 200 MPs, the hard-line Tory Home Secretary Sir David Maxwell Fife, one of the judges at Nuremberg, whom we met earlier busily persecuting homosexuals, ordered Bentley's execution to go ahead. On the 13th of July, 1955, a young mother, Ruth Ellis, was hanged for the murder of her faithless lover, the last woman to be executed in Britain. The following year, the man who had killed her, Britain's famous executioner, Albert Pierpoint, pub landlord and member of a family of public hangmen, resigned from his job. He had ended the lives of 433 men and 17 women, ranging from frightened boys who had been in the wrong place to some of the worst Nazi war criminals. Many believed he had retired out of a sense of disgust. This was far from the case. Pierpoint had been having an argument about his last fee when he turned up one cold morning to find the prisoner had been granted clemency. Later he would revise his original view and support abolition. Though there was still formidable public support for hanging, MPs were becoming increasingly unhappy about it. Silverman formed a national campaign to end the death penalty. In 1957, the Tory government radically slimmed down the offences which demanded capital punishment to five forms of murder. The number of hangings fell from an average of fifteen a year in the first half of the fifties to about four a year. The execution still, however, included some odd decisions, such as the putting to death of Henrik Niemash, who appeared to have killed while he was sleepwalking. Against this background, the anti-hanging majority in the Commons which had before been frustrated by the pro-hanging House of Lords, became steadily more assertive. In Silverman, a left-wing pacifist from a very poor Jewish family who had served time in wormwood scrubs for his views during the First World War, the anti-hanging movement had a persistent and eloquent leader, able to win over such notable non-liberals as the future Home Secretary and Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan. In two days in August 1964, three men were hanged for murder a twenty-one-year-old Scot who had killed a seaman and who was executed in Aberdeen, an Englishman in Walton Prison in Liverpool, and a Welshman in Manchester Strangeways Prison. They were the last. Hanging was abolished for almost every offence, in practice ended completely in 1965. Initially, the abolition was for a trial period of five years. It was then formally abolished. This did not make Britain strikingly liberal by Western standards, though executions went on in France by guillotine until 1977, and continue in the United States now. The Sexual Offences Bill, which ended the indictment of homosexuals, was led by another Labour-backbencher, Leo Absey, Also, it happens, a Jewish left-winger, from a poor background and, like Silverman, a passionate lawyer regarded with a mixture of admiration and suspicion by the Labour front bench. Here, too, politicians were reacting to a changing mood, if not among the whole public, then at least among what would later be called, with easy disparagement, the chattering classes. John Wolfenden, whose report in 1957 had called for the decriminalisation of homosexual acts in private between consenting adults, was a public school headmaster. His committee included the whole card deck of great and good professionals, from Presbyterian clergy and a professor of moral theology to Tory MPs. After his conclusions were rejected by the Conservative government, the campaign spread, though it was a cliquish affair. It opened with a letter to the Spectator, followed by another to the Times. Lord Attlee was a supporter, as was A.J. Ayer, the philosopher. When the Homosexual Law Reform Society was formed in May 1958, Its founders included clergy, publishers, poets and MPs, few of them homosexuals themselves. Its first full-time worker was a married vicar, Andrew Halliday Smith. Its first big public meeting at London's Caxton Hall attracted a thousand people. Harold Wilson's government was privately divided about legalising homosexuality. In general, the more conventional working-class members of the Cabinet were at least enthusiastic, and the liberal intellectuals such as Crossland and Jenkins were most supportive. If anything, the Conservative benches, packed with former public schoolboys, were privately more tolerant than the Labour ones. Wilson was judged to be privately hostile to reform. Yet, as with hanging, the tacit support of the Home Office and its guarantee of enough parliamentary time to get the measure through helped to win the day. And as with hanging, in Absey, the measure had a hyperactive and persistent advocate. A factory worker and communist sympathiser before the war, who fought in the RAF before becoming a lawyer, Absey would go on to show time and again that backbenchers need not be lobby fodder, but can effect real change. He was a curious peacock character, whose application of Freudian analysis to other politicians caused much mirth and offence later on. A whiff of his style can be had from the title of his book, Fallatio, Masochism, Politics and Love, published in 2000. In time, the Sexual Offences Act of 1967 would be criticised by gay activists for not going nearly far enough in giving equality before the law. The age of consent was higher, and privacy was judged very narrowly indeed, leading to a spate of indecency convictions after the law was passed. But it was a landmark nevertheless, building on the shifts in attitude that had begun in the fifties and perhaps even earlier during the war. If the anti-hanging movement can be traced to the executions of Bentley and Ellis and the homosexual reform movement to revulsion against the purge of the fifties, the abortion law reform movement can be traced to two unrelated horrible stories. The first was the rape of a fourteen-year-old girl by some guardsmen in a West London barracks shortly before the war. After one doctor refused to perform an abortion on the grounds that since her life was not in danger he would be breaking the law, another doctor, Alec Bourne, stepped in. He performed the operation and was duly prosecuted. Bourne defended himself on the grounds that the girl's fragile mental health meant that the abortion was, in practice, essential. He won and became an instant hero to the small female campaign which had been set up to reform the abortion law in 1936. From their point of view, this was a mistake— Born would later recant, declaring that mass abortions would be the greatest holocaust in history, and in 1945 he would become a founding member of the anti-abortion group, the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child, or SPUC. The second event was much more widespread. It was the thalidomide drug disaster of 1959 to 1962. This alleged wonder drug, which helped sleeplessness, colds, flu, and morning sickness, was responsible for huge numbers of badly deformed children being born, many missing all or some of their limbs. Opinion polls at the time showed large public majorities in favour of abortions when the foetus was deformed. This was far more influential than the actions of the Abortion Law Reform Association, which had just over 1,100 members at the time. Abortion was also clearly a class issue. In the early 60s, an estimated 10,000 private abortions were taking place in Harley Street and other West End clinics, where relevant paperwork had been obtained and plenty of cash had changed hands. At the other end of the social scale, horrific backstreet abortions with coat hangers, chemicals and rubber pumps were causing injuries and some deaths. Around 35,000 women a year were being treated in National Health Service hospitals for botched abortions. Even if one takes a middle figure— between the one hundred thousand and quarter of a million illegal abortions then taking place. Vagueness about numbers is inevitable, given the hidden and private nature of the abortions. This suggests very large numbers of young women were exposing themselves to terrible risk. By the mid-sixties, botched abortions were the main cause of avoidable maternal death. It was a theme that would be crucial to the MP who took on this reform— the next in the series of backbench nation-changers. David Steele, a Scottish Liberal who had just been elected to the Commons in a by-election, was still in his twenties and just two years out of law school. The boy David would go on to lead his party and be the first presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament, but his dogged battle to legalise abortion was the most controversial fight of his life. He had come third in the ballot for private members' bills in 1966, and initially thought he would try to pilot through homosexual law reform, until he realised the level of hostility in Scotland, where the law would remain unchanged for years to come, meant it could only be an English and Welsh measure. A serious-minded young man, Steele had been much impressed by the Church of England's recent report on abortion, arguing the Christian case for its moderate use, and attended an abortion for himself before deciding. But essentially he was put up to it by Roy Jenkins. Like Silverman and Absey, he had much expert opinion on his side, not a Wolfenden report or the passionate books of philosophers, but the World Health Organization, which had declared in 1946 that health meant complete mental, physical and social well-being. This implied that mental suffering to the woman could be grounds for abortion. It was written into the bill, and today, of the 180,000 abortions taking place each year in Britain, all but two percent of them are on just such grounds. Though these were the most famous, or infamous, moments of Roy Jenkins' liberal hour, they were not the only ones. The old law on divorce, which generally required evidence that one party had committed adultery, and therefore the whole jig of private detectives, cameras, hotel rooms, and often staged, in flagrante moments, would finally be ended in 1969 by the Divorce Reform Act. This was also part of the Jenkins' agenda, and he had wanted to see it through two years earlier. The new law allowed divorce if a couple had lived apart for two years and both wanted it, or if they had lived apart for five years and one partner wanted divorce. This irretrievable breakdown clause, often oddly called no-fault divorce, was followed by a rocketing rate of divorces rising from around 7% of marriages in the late 50s to close to 50% now. The causes of this domestic revolution are many, and include greater publicity about sexual gratification, domestic violence, and greater female financial independence. But the 1969 Act was a huge factor. Then there was the Theatres Act of 1968, again taken through by a Labour backbencher, George Strauss, one of the founders of Tribune, which finally ended the Lord Chamberlain's censorship role after a particularly controversial verdict against a play at the Royal Court, Saved. By Edward Bond. The Lord Chamberlain of the time, Kim Cobbold, was privately grateful for the end of his role. Though shows like Hare and O oh Calcutta quickly exploited the new freedoms of the stage to the disgust of Middle England, there was hardly a tide of filth spewing across the stage. Over the next decade or two, the plays which were genuinely controversial would be rare enough to produce media cyclones, yet hardly anyone called for the return of the Lord High Censor and his blue pencil. Jenkins turns out to be the single most influential politician of the sixties, though never Prime Minister himself. All of these measures were given vital help by him, following a personal agenda he had set out years earlier and vigorously pursued by exercising personal decision-making and persuasive powers in the Cabinet and Commons. Most private members' bills fail because they run out of time for debate, something controlled by the government. Jenkins ensured there was plenty of time. He helped pick and coach backbench leaders for reform. On numerous occasions he spoke for them. So why had he not led the charge himself? The simple answer is that Wilson's cabinet was a lot less liberal than Jenkins was, with three or four ministers utterly opposed to each of these measures. Wilson was hostile, for instance, to the ending of stage censorship, partly because he was nervous about the forthcoming stage version of Private Eye's satirical Mrs. Wilson's Diary. The Secretary of State for Scotland, Willie Ross, was hostile to almost all the reforms, and often backbenchers who supported one liberalisation would be against another. So Jenkins proposed what he called a stratagem, whereby he would give backbenchers time and freedom to attack first, while allowing himself the liberty to speak in their support. This allowed his cabinet critics to vote against the changes, which were carried after very long and highly emotional late-night debates. All transpired just as Jenkins had hoped. He felt he was at the cutting edge of a war about what it meant to be civilized. Against him and the reformers were many clergy, including the Roman Catholic Church, millions of quietly conservative-minded citizens, and much of the political establishment. When he arrived at the old ministerial rooms of the Home Secretary, long since gone, he found an air of gloom and some very suspicious officials. There was an indicator board in one corner of his office with the names of prisoners awaiting execution. Hanging was only suspended, as it were. Originally, the board had shown the names moving steadily towards the date fixed for their hanging. Jenkins had it moved out and replaced with a fridge for white wine and soda. After supporting the abolition of hanging, and after refusing to authorise the birching of a prisoner, he became a hate figure among many ordinary policemen, as well as for the grassroots of the Tory party, something he seemed to regard as an honour. Yet he was not liberal on everything— He believed that crime would be cut more effectively by catching more criminals and getting more guilty verdicts than by horrific punishments. One of his most important changes was to bring in majority verdicts for English juries. Scotland had always allowed them, rather than the old rule that they must be unanimous. Many of Jenkins' critics on the right opposed this. As he noted with a certain smugness much later, 74 Conservatives voted against. "'including Mrs. Thatcher, who went into the lobby against the change "'which has contributed more to the conviction of professional and dangerous criminals "'than any measure which was introduced by her four Home Secretaries. "'The social changes were rarely argued through with clarity, or indeed honesty. "'Absey later described the arguments he used about homosexuality, "'accepting that it was a pitiable medical condition that required treatment as absolute crap.' Despite endless public debate, the abortion reformers entirely played down the significance of psychological health as a reason for a termination, passionately arguing that the bill was not a charter for abortion on demand, which it certainly became. The use of separation as ground for divorce, rather than proof of adultery, was said to be a measure which would strengthen marriage. If so, it was clearly a failure. It was argued and assumed that the end of hanging would not increase the rate of murder or violent crime both would soon rise sharply. All these measures had the backing of small and dedicated campaigns, generally only a few thousand strong. Each depended on celebrity intellectuals of one kind or another to finally slaughter legislation which went back to Victorian times, and in the case of Hanging far earlier whether it was the philosopher Bertrand Russell inveighing against the anti-homosexual laws, or Lawrence Olivier giving evidence against theatre censorship, or the British Medical Association helping turn the mood on abortions, this was a social revolution led by eggheads and experts. It showed just how influential, apparently marginal people could be in the Britain of the late 50s and mid-60s. Liberals, though unimportant politically, indeed at their low point of the century, were particularly influential not only Steele on abortion and Ludovic Kennedy on the death penalty, but through the parliamentary enthusiasm of their leader, Joe Grimmond. The left-wingers and intellectuals around Tribune, who were being elbowed aside by Wilson, also had a real influence on these non-economic issues. The model for egghead-led change had been the famous court case of October 1960, Regina v. Penguin Books Limited at the Old Bailey, better known as the Lady Chatterley trial. Again, Jenkins was there. He had been the only MP on the Committee of Liberalisers whose work eventually produced the Obscene Publications Act of the previous year, now about to be tested. Defending Penguin's right to publish an unexpurgated text of Lawrence's novel about the love affair between a lady and a gamekeeper, with its phallic romps through the undergrowth, its scenes of copulation and buggery, and, not least, its use of the words fuck and cunt, had brought together a coalition of the permissive. From the Bishop of Woolwich to E. M. Forster, these were the people who might be expected to append their names to letters to the Times about the evils of colonialism, or turn up at a pro-homosexual rights meeting, or support C. N. D. The people who would be satirised mercilessly by Michael Wharton of the Daily Telegraph in his Beachcomber column, and by the cartoonist Osbert Lancaster. The list of witnesses for the Lady Chatterley defence included Oxbridge professors, clergymen, famous writers, a future Tory MP, and a poet laureate. It was a unique coming together of liberal and intellectual strands in British public life. Left-wing and liberal Christian thought had been in the ascendant in the Church of England during and after the war, as we have seen. The wartime Archbishop, William Temple, was still being quoted at the Lady Chatterley trial. The big publishing houses were often in the hands of men of the high-minded liberal and centre-left, Sir Alan Lane himself, or Victor Gollancz. The leftish newspapers, such as The Observer, Manchester Guardian, and News Chronicle, not to mention the resurgent Daily Mirror, were at the height of their influence. As with abortion or the divorce law, expert advice was used to intimidate and mock the self-appointed guardians of tradition, and to good effect. The tactic of finding irreproachably serious and well-regarded authority figures to front radical change, so confusing the forces of tradition, was first tested over Lady Chatterley. Mervyn Griffiths-Jones, QC, an old Etonian, ex-Grenadier guard, summing up for the prosecution, was explicit about the historic nature of the choice before the jury. There must be, he pleaded, some standards of morality, some standards of language and conversation, some standards of conduct which are essential to the well-being of our society. Since the war, the country had been suffering from increasing sex obsession, a lack of restraint and moral discipline. The jury had heard a long list of experts, Griffiths Jones concluded. Members of the jury, you will not be browbeaten by evidence given by these people. You will judge this as ordinary men and women, with your feet, I trust, firmly planted on the ground. But what was ordinary now? His question as to whether male jurymen would permit their wives or servants to read such a book caused hoots of laughter round the country. Their verdict against him concluded what had been a kind of genteel liberal carnival, the opening act of the permissive society that was coming. It would mean the publication of books which, unlike Lawrence's, were mainly to be read with one hand—John Cleland's eighteenth-century porn novel Fanny Hill, Pauline Riage's sadomasochistic novel The Story of O, and much else. In this sense, the high-mindedness of the anti-censorship brigade would be quickly confounded. They had stood their ground on Lawrence or James Joyce, elite writers. Doing so, they ushered in freedoms which would swiftly be exploited in ways they had not intended or foreseen. That, however, is the nature of freedoms. Thus, small groups of the upper orders changed the rules of British life and found themselves unprepared for the torrent of change that followed. Some of the fastidious homosexual rights campaigners of the fifties and sixties were appalled by the shameless exuberance of the gay lib movement. Many of the abortion rights campaigners, including David Steele himself, said later that they had not expected the sheer number of terminations that were then permitted. The argument about hanging raged more strongly, if anything, after abolition than it had before it. There were still strong conservative voices expressing unease and anger. In the Lords, the war hero Viscount Montgomery of Alamein said he favoured the age of homosexual consent being fixed at eighty. The chief scout protested about England going the way of ancient Greece, and a bishop warned that the country was rife with buggers' clubs. A world away, in a Midland secondary school, an art teacher with strong Christian principles began planning her campaign against lewdness. Mary Whitehouse's clean-up TV campaign would, from 1964, make her a major national figure who spoke for millions. Judges, local councils, and hundreds of clergy who did not agree with the Bishop of Woolwich would later be joined by journalists who had had second thoughts about the sixties, men such as Malcolm Muggeridge, Christopher Booker, and Bernard Levin. It is always dangerous to define an era by a few high-profile events taking place in London. Yet, across Britain, there is no doubt that traditional values were under attack and falling back in confusion. The reforms of the Jenkins era could all be regarded as denationalizations or social privatizations, in that they involved the state giving up powers that it had once had, backing away from its old authority. They can be seen as the social and moral equivalent of the industrial privatizations of the Thatcher years, when the state surrendered economic powers and ownership. The left tended to think people's private lives should be their own, even if they made choices traditional Christian society regarded as immoral, but that people's working lives, from how much they earned to where they worked, were fit for state interference. The right had a reverse view that the state should uphold traditional moral codes with the full rigor of the law, but keep out of the economy as much as possible. The lasting changes made by each side are the ones in which politics did pull back, leaving the state smaller both morally and economically. Did they make the country more civilised, as Jenkins and his supporters believed, or did they make it coarser and more dangerous, as right-wing commentary has alleged? Despite serious rises in violent crime, there is little campaigning for a return to hanging. Censorship, too, seems something few modern Britons are keen on. Though divorce has become commonplace, causing great unhappiness as well as liberation, Tougher laws to force people to remain married are on no political party's agenda. Homosexual rights have been increased. Again, the movement seems all one way. Abortion, affected by changes in medical technology and by the influence of evangelical organisations, is probably the most disputed of the 60s reforms and the one most likely to be revisited. A fair verdict is that the changes allowed the British to be more openly themselves and that while the results are not always pretty, the apple of self-knowledge, cannot be uneaten again and returned to the tree. The Democracy of Narcissism Much the same divided response still resonates about the whole decade. Why do the sixties seem to matter so much? Why is it that on television, in magazine articles, net debates, in books, and in conversation, so much time is spent on a few events involving a tiny number of people in a few places? There is almost autistic repetitiveness to our scratching of the images, from minis to minis, Beatlemania to Bieber, as if there are secrets still hidden there for us to uncover, some hidden pattern that gives order to history. The truth is that we have never really left the sixties. We have simply repeated them, and that goes for those who were only born later, Sixties music, shopping and celebrity culture have been spread far beyond their first makers and participants, to almost everybody in the land. The essence of British culture in the early twenty-first century, from drug abuse to the background soundtracks of our lives, the celeb-obsessed media to swift changes in fashion, the pretense of classlessness, the car dependency, was all set down first between around 1958 and 1968. We are still living then, or at least in a slightly tired copy of how the 60s were for the elite. There was a brief political interruption in the mid-70s when Britain was said to be ungovernable and punk-pogoed past, but it was only a pause. As the 80s economy revived, the 60s' basic preoccupations—escapism, personal fulfilment and shopping—returned with full force. This was a time when the mass-consumer culture first arrived, our democracy of narcissism. First time around, of course, it was fresher. Pioneers have an innocence their imitators lack. Sixties culture was made by people who had no idea they were setting patterns for the future. The pop songs of the early Beatles, or the Kinks, were not foremost neatly packaged commodities, as all pop songs later became. When Mary Quant set up her shop, she was a rotten businesswoman. The fun was in the clothes. No business with so little grip on cash could be cynical. When the protest poets first howled, or artists staged happenings, there was just a fragment of a flicker of a hope that it might change something. This innocence extends even to the mistakes, the belief that drugs can make urban life more benign rather than dirtier and more dangerous. Or that tower blocks would bring a bright, airy future to the urban working classes. And it extends to that desperate search for alternatives, other ways of living. These included anarchist utopias, Jungian analysis, Eastern religion, radical feminism, all tumbling one after another with the speed of changes in musical fashion. This counterculture was discredited and left behind. It survives as fragmented subcultures only. But the pushback against the great force of the shopping age was, like so much else in these years, vigorous and gripping. No new ideas have come since. At the time, of course, the sixties were a minority sport. The King's Road and the Royal Court were as foreign to most Britons in 1965 as the King and Royal Court had been in 1765. The majority who lived through the decade have personal memories of rather conventional suburban and provincial lives. Though city centres were being torn up and new housing replacing old, from Manchester's dreadful Hume estate to the government award-winning Broadwater Farm in Tottenham, most working-class people were living in old-fashioned housing, brick terrace houses in the English industrial cities, tenements in Glasgow or Dundee. There were brighter-coloured new cars on the roads, but much of the traffic was still the boxy, black, cream or toffee-coloured traffic of the fifties. People did have money in their pockets, but it was still being spent on holidays at Butlins and the seaside, rather than on decadent parties. The great working-class prosperity of the Midlands, based on the last fat years of manufacturing industry, was only just paying dividends in holidays in Spain. Wilson might be promising the white-hot heat of technological revolution, But British factories were the sprawling, dirty, assembly-line centres of class conflict they had been for decades. For children, the authority figures of the wartime era, the formerly-dressed fathers, teachers with short haircuts and shorter tempers, remained all too visible. Schools still used corporal punishment. Mothers tended to cook and clean at home. The Britain, which proudly displayed volumes of Churchill's war memoirs on bookshelves, Had stood up in cinemas for the national anthem, did not disappear when Ringo Starr grew his first luxuriant moustache. End of Disc 10